continue in this series, The Gospel According to Mark, and see what this has for us today. And I really believe that God wants to speak to us, whether, listen, it may be your first time in church ever, maybe, I don't know. But um, I really believe that God wants to speak to you today. And maybe you'll understand all of what I say today. Maybe you'll understand 10%. I don't know. But I just want to encourage you to just have a heart that says, Lord, would you speak to me today? If there's something for me, would you speak to me? And I really believe that God can and wants to and, and will speak to you today through his word. And so we're going to turn this morning uh, in our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We've been going through Mark's gospel for the last like eight or nine weeks, actually. And uh, at this rate, it's been like a chapter per week, basically. Um, but uh, I'm really looking forward to this, uh, this passage of Scripture that we get to look at this morning. Mark 8, verse 1 to 8, I am going to read this to us. We're going to read actually all the way to like 21 later, but we're going to start by just Mark 8, verse 1 to 8. And that will kind of set up what's going on in this passage of Scripture. And basically, we're just going to look at this one paragraph at a time. And we, wanna, we have hearts that want to say, Lord, what are you revealing to us through your word? And I think that that's really important because ultimately as a pastor, it's not my goal just to preach my words to you, but to preach God's word to you. It's my goal as a pastor not to get more of me into your life because you don't need that. I want you to know right now. But it's to get more of Jesus into your life more of his word, because that's what we all need in this room this morning. And so why don't we read Mark 8, verse 1 to 8. You can follow along on the screen behind me. It says this. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. If you're taking notes this morning, you can title this message, More Than a Meal. More Than a Meal. Why don't we pray and uh, jump into this this morning? Father, we thank you uh, that we can gather here this morning. We thank you for your word, and we just ask that you'd speak to us today. Our hearts are open. We want to hear from you. We want to encounter your presence in the midst of life, in the midst of busyness, in the middle of summer, in the middle of vacation, in the middle of work, in the middle of whatever's going on. We need you. So in this moment, as we just pause in the middle of life, <laughs> as we intentionally just read your word. Would you just teach us? Would you speak to us? Would you communicate to us? We need more of you. We need more of your spirit. We need more of your presence. We desire you, Lord. In your mighty name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. All right, I want you to imagine the scene here that we're reading about today. Uh, people, thousands of people, are coming from all over this region that is called the Decapolis. Um, I've actually got a map uh, that we've looked at already in Mark's Gospel. You can go ahead and put that up. Uh, this is this map of, of uh, northern Israel at the time of Jesus. And most of Jesus' ministry is taking place in this region called Galilee. We see Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. We see Capernaum uh, and Chorazin and Bethsaida. If you remember from like week one of this series, uh, that's like the region that Jesus was most actively teaching in. That's where he called his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. That's where uh, he, uh, he was teaching, most of his teaching in Mark's gospel was taking place there. But here in this passage that we're reading this morning, Jesus and the disciples have made their way across the lake into this region called the Decapolis. And it was named the Decapolis because there were 10 um, 
10 famous uh, Roman cities in this region. And so they are in Gentile territory. Remember, Gentiles are non-Jews, essentially. Anybody that was not a Jew was a Gentile. You and I today are Gentiles, at least most of us, probably. Um, And Gentiles uh, were actually looked down on by the Jewish people at this time. Um, They were not looked at highly, and yet this is where Jesus and his disciples are, in the middle of the wilderness, or middle of the desert, and they're teaching people, and thousands and thousands of people are coming to hear him teach. They're hanging on every word. And it's interesting when you read it that they've been there for three days. That's a long time, all right? I I know sometimes I can go long in my teaching here, in my preaching, but you can all be very thankful that I'm not doing this for three straight days. Can I get an amen, a praise the Lord, a hallelujah? I'll say that on your behalf, hallelujah, okay? I would get very bored of my own voice after about, like an hour's about my own limit, and then I'm tired of myself. And so, yeah, it's not three days. Now, Jesus is a whole different thing. It's pretty incredible that people were there and listening to him for three days, and they, they have no food. And that's interesting as well. Now, when I grew up, Every week, uh, going to church, I would go to church with my family, and every week after church, without fail, like my whole life growing up, we would go to my grandparents' house for Sunday lunch. There was something so holy and beautiful about Sunday lunch. Do you agree? It's a wonderful thing. We would go every week, and so I can remember being younger, being a kid, sitting in the church service, and I know I was supposed to be listening to what the pastor was saying. But all I could listen to at that moment was my stomach saying, I'm hungry, okay? Feed me. Maybe you can relate because maybe this morning you're feeling the exact same way and you have no idea what I'm saying right now because you are just thinking about lunch. Anybody? Hands up if that's you. Uh, I see a few hands. Thank you for your honesty. Get out right now. I'm just kidding. Um, I get it, okay? All that to say, I understand. I was supposed to be listening to the sermon, but all I could think about was my grandma's mashed potatoes, Praise God. Meatloaf. Let's go. I know that maybe doesn't sound good, but it was good. Uh, Think of it like a giant meatball, basically. Incredible. Um, Carrots, corn, gravy. Can I get an amen for gravy this morning? As far as I'm concerned, gravy is a gift of the Spirit, okay? It's like, I know it's not in Scripture, but I, I guarantee you at that uh, beautiful uh, feast, uh, when Jesus returns, there's going to be some good gravy on the table. Um, I, I Praise God, uh, I happen to marry somebody who makes incredible gravy. I didn't know this until we were married. This was just like, thank you, Lord, for the great gift that this is in my life. And It's all I could think about. Uh, It's all that I could uh, hear was my stomach growling. I couldn't hear the sermon being preached at this time. And if that's you today, I get it. I understand. No judgment on you right now. I'll just go and cry in the bathroom later. It's okay. Um, And so the fact that these people were so caught up in Jesus' teaching that they went three days without eating really puts into perspective, I think, how compelling the teaching and the person of Jesus actually was. This might, this might be the greatest defense of Christian faith in the entire Bible, is just that these people were willing to go hungry for three days while listening to Jesus. These hungry people were listening to him. And of course, he, was, uh, he would end up satisfying their spiritual hunger and their physical hunger on this day. Take a look at verse 1 with me again as we dive into this. Mark writes that during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. This is getting dangerous here. They will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Jesus is filled with compassion for these people. The word compassion in the Greek that Mark writes in is the word splenchnizomai. Splenchnizomai, what a great word 
Splinch, can you say that? Splinch, nizomai, go ahead, try and say that. Splinch, nizomai. I love that word. It's so, like, weird and wonderful. It's actually the word that refers to the anatomy of a person, like the gut of a person. Maybe in the way that we might say today, like, I've got a gut feeling. I've just got a gut feeling that this is how it is, or it's gut-wrenching. It's in the same way. In other words, this, this word, splenchnismi, really shows that Jesus was moved from the inside out for this group of people. He was deeply affected. He wasn't just thinking like, oh, maybe these people need to be fed. I guess I should probably feed these people. But he was motivated actually out of a deep love for these people who were coming to hear him teach. And it's very significant that Jesus would love this particular group of people, this particular type of crowd that he was teaching on that day. And we're about to see in a moment why that's significant. In verse 4, his disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? The disciples are like, we are in the middle of nowhere right now. We're in the middle of the wilderness. Where do you expect us to get the food to feed 4,000 people right now? I don't know where to go. There's no Willies here. There's no Coop here. There's no Lidl here. There's no City Gross here. There's no Ica here. Where are my Ica people at? Come on, let's go Ica people. Praise God. Uh, the place where Victoria and I often go to shop, there's like an Ica. And right across the hallway, there's a Willie's. And I think it's like the, the, like it's, I wonder, do they fight? Like after hours, do they battle each other? It's, uh, you know, I think it's awesome. I hope that they do. I think about that all the time. I often, from the Ica, look across and see them in Willie's. And my heart goes out to these people that are shopping there. It's very unfortunate, I feel. Um, but uh, Ica didn't exist in the wilderness of the Decapolis at that time. Jesus asked his disciples, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. And I love this little note of grace that we read about here. Because the disciples' slowness and lack of trust in Jesus and understanding what he's about to do, it doesn't prevent them from being God's agents in blessing the needy. And I think that this can be an encouragement to us today that even though we don't always get it right, even though we might be slow to believe or trust in Jesus and his ability to provide for us and for others, and we don't trust him perfectly or fully, it doesn't automatically count us out from being used uh, by God to bless others. Verse 7, it says, they had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. It's at this point, when reading through Mark's gospel, that the astute reader might pause and they might say, haven't I read this before? Haven't I heard this story before? Uh, haven't I read this in Mark's gospel before? What is going on right now? Is Mark just like recycling stories or something like that? Have you ever noticed that before? We're reading through Mark's gospel, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you pick up on the fact that this is the second story that we read in just two chapters where Jesus feeds thousands of people miraculously in the wilderness. The first story happens in Mark chapter 6, and this one happens at the beginning of Mark chapter 8. And the two stories are actually really similar. They both happen in a remote place, the wilderness, People come to hear Jesus' teaching. They get hungry. Jesus is filled with compassion. In fact, Mark uses the exact same word in both stories. There's a few pieces of bread and a few pieces of fish. Jesus does a miracle, and there's leftovers at the end. It's interesting. What's happening here? Did Mark hit copy-paste or something? Did he forget to delete one of the stories from the Google Doc before he sent it to get published? Like, what is going on here that there's two almost identical stories taking place so close to one another? It's not that Mark just decided to recycle material. There's one major difference between these two stories. The first time, 
when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus is feeding Jews in Israel. And the second time, when Jesus feeds the 4,000, he is feeding Gentiles in the Decapolis, pagan territory. This is also why there are seven loaves of bread and seven baskets left over. Numbers were very important and symbolic to people in the ancient Near East in the first century. And seven at this time was actually a number that was often used to refer to the Gentile people. This developed amongst the Jews because there had been seven Gentile nations that the Israelites had to drive out of Canaan or the promised land in the Old Testament. And so the number seven came to represent, in general, Gentile people. Earlier, when the 5,000 people were fed, there were 12 basketfuls left over, which was symbolic of God's full provision for the 12 tribes of Israel. Here, there are seven baskets left over, which is symbolic of the full provision of God for the Gentile people. It's, in, it's a significant detail that's easy to miss. Through this, Mark is showing that Jesus is more than sufficient for all of the people in the entire world. Mark is doing something really important by making us aware that Jesus is here in Gentile territory, that he's not only the Savior for Israel, but he's also the Savior of the entire world. All nations, all people, regardless of background, have access to the grace of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is moved with that word compassion for all people, for the Jewish people and for the non-Jewish people. And this is so significant for Jews that assume that the Messiah would come and he would be for the Jewish people to overthrow the oppression of the Roman Empire. And here's Jesus in Gentile territory with, Jewish, with Gentile people who the Jews were like, you can't even associate with this, these people. Yet Jesus goes to them and he has compassion on them and he feeds them spiritually and physically in a way that is over and above anything that they could ever imagine or even need. This means for us today that Jesus' salvation and power is for the whole world. It was for the Greeks. It was for the Romans. In modern day, it's for Canadians. It's for Americans. It's for Swedes. It's for Chinese. It's for Syrians. It's even for Norwegians, if you can believe that. I guess maybe we'll include them this morning. It's for the whole world. The Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one, brings redemption, healing, restoration to everybody. This is good news for you and me today because we're included in this ourselves. Jesus has compassion today for us as well. But what happens next is unexpected. We pick up reading, and it says, after he had sent them away, that is all the people, he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the region of Dalmanutha. And this is back, once again, on the west end of the lake. He's now back in Israel. This is near Capernaum, is what scholars believe. And he's back there in Jewish territory. And then we see in verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. Now, we need to remember that the Pharisees were a group of Jewish religious leaders during this day, and they come and they start questioning Jesus. And the word question that is used here isn't so much like a humble curiosity, but rather this word is a word that means to interrogate or to challenge or to debate. That's the idea here. The Pharisees show up, and they sort of come to do battle with Jesus by challenging him and by testing him. So it says that the Pharisees came, they began to question Jesus. And to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. And I want to just dig into this word test for a moment. It's a really important word that's used here. And it's the exact same word that Mark uses at the beginning of his gospel. In Mark 1 verse 13, where Satan tested, tempted Jesus in the wilderness. It's interesting because Mark here is aligning what the Pharisees are doing to what Satan did to Jesus in the wilderness. And it almost seems a little harsh for Mark to, uh, you know, 
say like, oh, the Pharisees are basically being like Satan to Jesus in this instance. But we got to remember what's taking place here because the Pharisees have already decided and plotted that they wanted to kill Jesus. And in this instance, they're not actually interested in testing Jesus to determine anything, but they're testing him to actually tempt him in the way that Satan did. I mean, we have to think about it for a moment because Jesus had already just finished doing all of these miracles. He had fed the thousands of people. He'd been healing people. He'd been doing all of these different things that the Pharisees know all about. But they're like, I don't know. I don't know, Jesus. Uh, I'm going to need to see something a little more spectacular, Jesus, before we believe in you. Maybe it's time to do something a little more impressive than just what you've been doing. And they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so they demand some sort of evidence. Sort of like saying, okay, Jesus, prove it. That's not good enough. Prove it to me that you're the Messiah. But the evidence that they demand is based on their criteria for who they think the Messiah should be. To ask for a sign from heaven as they did without getting too deep into it, was a way for them to ask Jesus to take power to overthrow the Roman government that was oppressing them at the time. They were essentially tempting Jesus to become a power-oriented Messiah who gets people to follow him through great displays of force and power. Essentially, they want Jesus to be Superman and to come and fulfill their own agenda They want the Messiah of their dreams. And in doing so, the Pharisees were actually working to turn Jesus away from his mission, which wasn't to display power in that way, but was actually to go to the cross and to die and bear our sin on the cross. Jesus is cross-directed. And this is what Satan was trying to prevent when he tested him in the wilderness. And this is what the Pharisees were knowingly or unknowingly, trying to prevent by testing Jesus now. And this is why, by the way, Jesus is always discouraging people from speaking word about him. Um, You ever notice that? It's like Jesus does this incredible miracle, and then he says, now don't tell anybody about this. I'm always like, why not, Jesus? It's like, go let people know. Wow, look at what Jesus did. Like, it seems so strange. But Jesus never seems to be impressed by big crowds. And he never seems to be impressed by, like, letting everybody know. That's not his main mission on earth. It's not his point. His mission isn't to be famous. His mission is the cross. And he doesn't want anybody or anything to get in the way of him going to the cross. It's why he rebukes Peter so harshly in chapters to come when Peter says, surely you don't need to go to the cross. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter is displaying the exact same the thing that the Pharisees are here and that Satan did in the wilderness. And Jesus doesn't give in to the temptation. In verse 12, he, deep, he sighed deeply and he said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. Jesus doesn't give in to the temptation of the Pharisees. Instead, he walks away. He gets out of there. He's gone. And I think there are a couple things that are important for us to see in this part of the story. The first is that in one sense, the Pharisees represent a heart of unbelief. It's important for us to note this morning that there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is actually just a search for the truth. When you're not sure if something is true or not, you're struggling to believe, but ultimately doubt is a struggle towards belief. You want to believe, but you just doubt that it could be true. But you're struggling forward, however imperfectly that might be. Unbelief, on the other hand, is an arrogant and decided position of hard-heartedness against God. It's when you say, doesn't matter what evidence there might be to the contrary. I'm choosing not to believe. Unbelief is a way of thinking that demands that God would meet us on our own terms. And we see this all over the place. 
We see all over the place people who reject God because God doesn't fit the stereotype that we think that God should be. And so we say, I'm not going to believe in God because God doesn't fit my definition of who I think that God should be. And unknowingly, we try to define who God should be, which logically, when you think about it, just makes actually no sense whatsoever. I've heard somebody say before, in fact, I've heard many people say that they couldn't believe in a God who would judge someone. And it's actually strange when you start to think about that. It's a strange criteria for us to judge God by, ironically, because it positions us as the person to decide what is or isn't right or wrong. We all of a sudden elevate ourselves to the ultimate judge of goodness in the universe, and we judge God based on our own limited criteria of whether or not we happen to think that God is good or not. And it really makes no sense. Either it's true or it isn't. It is or it isn't. It's like saying, I couldn't believe in gravity that would do me harm if I jump out of a tree. How could I believe in gravity if it's going to break my leg when I jump out of a tree? It's like, well, good for you. You don't have to believe in gravity, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. Just try jumping out of the tree and see what happens, whether you believe it or not. The, and the consequence for your bad decision of jumping out of the tree uh, is based on a truth that's true, whether you like it or not. It is or it isn't. But doubting is wrestling with the truth. It's a search for the truth. It's different. And so on one level, the Pharisees represent a heart of unbelief. They're not interested in doubting. They're not interested in finding out the truth about Jesus. They have already just decided, in light of all the evidence, they don't care. Jesus does not fit our criteria for who we think that God should be, and therefore, we're closed off to all of it. All of the miracles he's doing, all of the whatever, doesn't matter. It's not going to sway us. It's not according to our agenda, and so we are deciding we're not going to believe. So they represent this heart of unbelief. But in another way, they also represent the nation of Israel as a whole, and especially Israel that we read about in the wilderness in Exodus, the second book of Moses in the Old Testament. In fact, in verses 11 to 13 that we just read a moment ago, they are packed with language from Exodus. Uh, For instance, the word test is all throughout Exodus. The word generation is all throughout the Old Testament, and especially in Exodus. We see it all over the place. It's a theme that comes up time and time again in the Old Testament. We see it in Genesis 7 when God talks about the generation that was alive during the time of Noah that invited God's judgment because of the way that they lived their lives. We also see it often, the, the generation of Israelites that were wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief in God. They are called that generation. The word sign is used all over Exodus for God's work, like the, the, ten pl- the plagues, the Red Sea, uh, water from the rock, manna, sign after sign after sign in the Old Testament. If you were a first century Jew reading these two verses in Mark chapter 8, you would immediately pick up on all of this Exodus language that's going on. And in one way, Mark is showing that the Pharisees are a lot like the Israelites who were wandering around in the desert, which is a pretty incredible rebuke against the uh, Pharisees, considering that the Israelites were wandering around the wilderness. Why? Because of their unbelief in God. But this whole story that we're reading today isn't just about the Pharisees. It's also about the disciples, and it's also about you and me. Let's keep reading. Verse 13 says, Then he left them, that is the Pharisees, got back on the boat and crossed to the other side. Verse 14, they're in the boat, and it says this, The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Such a funny detail to me that this is included. Once again, the disciples are screwing it all up. You would think, number one, that these guys would remember to bring some more than just one loaf of bread on the boat. I mean, most of them were professional fishermen, for goodness sakes, and they have totally forgotten to bring bread. Not only that, but Jesus just did a miracle, and there were seven basketfuls of bread left over. What happened to that? I don't know. But these guys, once again, they forget it all, and they're on the boat, and they've only got one loaf of bread. That's it. Verse 15. 
be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. What? This is classic Jesus, isn't it? You ever read something that Jesus says, and you're like, that makes no sense. Jesus, like, you're talking in riddles. You're talking in parables. I have, Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about. Just so you know, I still feel that way all the time, and I read my Bible a lot, okay? I'm a, I get paid to read the Bible, and uh, still I come across things, and I'm like, Jesus, what are you talking about here? What, is it just me, or does anybody else feel that way sometimes when you read? Uh, apparently not, okay? Okay. Uh, I'll just go home then, and uh, just kidding. Um, It's strange sometimes the way that Jesus talks in these very cryptic ways, but actually that's on purpose. And it actually, frustratingly, causes us to slow down and to think about what Jesus is saying, to ponder it, to meditate on it, to consider it. And in this little statement, Jesus is warning against the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, the yeast, or some translations use the word leaven. And, um, you know, for us today, uh, yeast is like a good thing, isn't it? It, It's something nice. Now, I got to admit that um, I know very little about baking anything, okay? My wife is laughing because she knows the truth. I'm not a good baker. That is not what I do. I don't have sourdough starter at home, and I wake up every morning, and I make beautiful bread. It's nothing like that. I know some of you in this room today, it's the opposite, and you're very good at baking stuff. Maybe you got into baking sourdough during the pandemic, and you kept it going. Well done. Good for you. Um, we've got Eunice in here. He literally is a, he works at the French bakery in town, Normandy. Shout out, Normandy. And he literally is French, and it's the best. You should get to know Eunice because he'll like, he, for instance, he's in my connect group and he'll come and he's just got like baguettes with him. It's the most French stereotype thing you've ever seen in your entire life. I love it. And he brings this beautiful stuff that he has made. So he knows a lot about baking. I know very little about baking. But fortunately, in some of the commentaries that I was studying about this passage this week, it actually outlined exactly what's going on here. And it had like a little lesson on baking bread in the middle of the commentary. So I thought that that was very uh, useful for me. Basically, this yeast, uh, although we think it's a good thing right now, at the time of Jesus, it was actually had like a negative connotation to it. This yeast, or leaven, was produced by keeping back a piece of the previous week's dough, and then they would store it in the right uh, place, and they would add the right juices to it, and it would ferment. But this ended up actually being dangerous at the time because this yeast could actually go bad. And if it became bad, it could actually become poisonous. And then if you were to use it in the dough for the next week, it would spread all throughout that new dough and it would render the batch worthless. And so yeast had this negative idea. It symbolized a little bit of corruption or a little bit of evil, how just a little bit of corruption could work its way through a lot. And this is the idea that Jesus uses to refer to the heart posture of the Pharisees and Herod. So what is the heart posture of the Pharisees and Herod? At first glance, it seems really strange to group these two people together. When you think about it, it's, it's really weird because they're on opposite ends of the spectrum totally. The Pharisees were a group of ultra conservative right wing religious leaders. And Herod, on the other side of the spectrum, was a non-religious sellout to Rome who pursued personal power. And it's like, why is Jesus comparing these two groups of people? This makes almost no sense. Yet the point at which they intersected was their unbelief in Jesus. Neither of these groups will admit the truth. They won't embrace the truth, even when the truth literally stares at them in the face in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is warning his disciples, and he's warning us today, to not become victims of the same kind of unbelief. Why is he warning them? Verse 16, they discussed with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. So really, the disciples are messing it up again. Once again, they don't understand the metaphor that Jesus has just used. It's like, guys, it's a metaphor. Hello, get it through your heads, disciples. Uh, You guys should be understanding this. Verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. I almost can imagine them like a teenager replying to their parents. How many baskets? Twelve, I guess. I can just see it right now. Peter, twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets did you pick up? They answered, seven. (laughs) He said to them, do you still not understand? Guys, you still don't get it? You've been with me this time, you still don't get it? Now, in that barrage of seven, interesting, questions, there's a well-known quote that comes from the Old Testament. It's used, again, all throughout the Old Testament. And once again, especially in Exodus, it's a line that is used for Israel in the wilderness and for the Israelites when they would rebel against God time and time and time again and that generation that died off. And it's the line, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? We see it time and time again. For instance, the prophet Jeremiah, he writes to Israel as they are worshiping other gods and they've forgotten about God. And it says this, uh, he says this in Jeremiah 5, verse 20, he says, announce this to the descendants of Jacob, that's Israel, and proclaim it in Judah. Read Israel once again. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. If you skip down to verse 23, says this, these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives autumn and spring rains and season, and who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. It's just one of many examples throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, hey, disciples, you guys also, have rebellious and stubborn hearts. It's not just the Pharisees who I've already called out. It's not just Herod who's actively trying to kill me. But you guys who are following me closely day after day after day, your hearts are also stubborn. There's been miracle after miracle, but you still don't get it. You've got eyes, but you do not see. I've just finished feeding thousands of people. You all saw it and you're worried about lunch for 13. You guys don't get it. You still don't trust me. You're following me, but you're not trusting me. And the same heart posture of unbelief that's in the Pharisees, it's in you guys. And Jesus is giving them, in so much love and compassion, is giving them a warning. And he's saying, don't let that little bit of unbelief take root in your life and ruin the whole bunch. Don't let it take root. Jesus is so merciful in calling out the disciples by saying, be careful, guys. Don't be like the unbelieving Israelites in the wandering in the wilderness. Don't be like the unbelieving Pharisees. Don't be like the unbelieving Herod. Don't be unbelieving disciples. Be careful. Don't let that little bit of toxic unbelief ruin you. And this is a reminder for us today, too. Don't let that little bit of yeast ruin you. As modern-day disciples, we too face the temptation to give up our trust in Jesus because he's not doing what we want him to do in the way that we want him to do it according to when we want him to do it. We also have sometimes got to get real with ourselves and recognize that we too have stubborn and rebellious hearts. We would rather trust in ourselves We'd rather self-help. We'd rather try and find our salvation anywhere else sometimes than our entrusting in Jesus. And it's stubbornness. And it's failing to trust in him. It's failing to trust that he is who he says he is, that he is in control, that he is able to provide over and above for our needs. We see it time and time again. I see this in my life all the time. So how do we guard against this unbelief today? What can we do to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of unbelief that the Pharisees and Herod and even the disciples were falling into? What do we do? And I think there's a couple of things I'm going to go through so quick that we must adopt 
uh, based on the words of Jesus in this passage to ensure that that little bit of evil or that little bit of self-help or that little bit of whatever doesn't work its way through us so that we fall away from trusting in Jesus. And it's this. The first is this. We need an attitude of seeing, not an attitude of blindness. Jesus says, do you have eyes but fail to see? So often, I am spiritually blind to the things of God. I wonder if you can relate. I don't see God's work in my life. It's not that he's not working. It's just that I'm blind to it. If I were only to open my eyes and take a look around, I would see all of the evidence of God's love literally all over the place in my life. But I'm blind. I'm indifferent. And I'm distracted. And so often, all we see is the dark spots in life. All we see are the areas of our lives where it feels blurry, where we don't see God's presence at work. And that's all that we see, and that's all that we think about, and that's all that we meditate on. And as a result, we're worried, and we're anxious, and we're nervous, and we look at our tiny loaf of bread, and we think, this will never be enough. How am I ever going to get by with just this little loaf of bread? Meanwhile, we're missing out on the bread of life whose presence is with us in the boat. Most of the time, we miss out on God and what he is doing because we only look for God in the miraculous and not in the mundane moments of life. We know that God is in the big things. Absolutely, he is. But also, God is in the little things, the normal parts of life. We would just open our eyes and see all the normal areas of life that God is with us. A cup of coffee in the morning, the oxygen that we breathe, all kinds of things. His presence and his power is all over the little, seemingly insignificant, ordinary moments of life. Think of these miracles that Jesus has been doing. What does he use to feed these people? Some bread and some fish the most basic, ordinary diet of a first-century person in Galilee. The stuff that everybody just had in their cupboard. This was not Michelin star gourmet dining that was taking place. It's bread and it's fish, and it's miraculous. Don't underestimate what God can do in the ordinary moments of your life. Don't underestimate how he can multiply the ordinary things that you have in such a way that it brings glory to him and blessing to others. This coming week, open your eyes to see. Look for God. See him at work in all the little ordinary moments of your life. The second attitude that we need is an attitude of hearing, not deafness. Jesus says, you have ears but fail to hear. In the same way as we're blind to the things of God, so often we're deaf to the things of God, to God's voice. I don't hear God the way that I would like to hear God. Why? It's not because God is silent. It's because God is quiet and life is loud. The modern world is so filled with noise. Phones buzzing, notifications beeping, music playing, headphones on, podcasts in the background, TikTok scrolling on and on and on, and this noise distracts us and it distorts us. And I think we need to relearn the art of listening for God's still, small voice. You're made to know God, and we need to learn to get away from the sound and the noise of life every now and then, to unplug, to maybe go on a walk without headphones in, and just listen for what God might be saying. Carve out some space to listen, to hear. Not to have music going. Turn, maybe even turn the worship music off. <laughs> that seems like a strange message to hear in church, but turn off the worship music for a moment and sit in silence, as scary as that can be. And listen for the voice of God. Sometimes we don't do that because I think in reality, we don't want to actually hear what God is saying to us. And so we'd rather distract ourselves sometimes with a a sermon on a podcast or worship music because we can hear somebody leading worship, but we don't actually have to hear God's voice, but we feel that we're doing something Christian. But maybe turn it off and listen for the voice of God. Carve out some space. Not that those things are bad, okay? Don't go away thinking that. It's very good, and we need that as well. 
but we need to listen for God's voice. Why is it that God sometimes speaks so quietly? I think it's because God is after intimacy and nearness with us. What happens when someone whispers? It causes the listener to lean in, to get close, to actively try and hear what's being said. When someone whispers, we need to get alone with them to hear what's being said. If you're at a noisy party and you want to have an intimate conversation with somebody, what do you need to do to connect with them? You need to step outside of that noisy environment. You go into another room, you go outside so that you can have that conversation and you can hear better. I think that's what God's voice is like a lot of the time. And in the middle of the noise of life, God is whispering, hey, I want to speak to you. And normally we're saying, God, I can't hear you. And God is saying, come on, get alone with me and hear my voice. In this coming week, carve out some time, morning, night, whatever works for you, and just stop and listen for what God wants to say to you. I believe that God will speak to you. Third attitude that we need to make sure we guard against this attitude of the Pharisees and so on is an attitude of remembrance, not forgetfulness. Verse 18, Jesus says, and don't you remember? And he goes on, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they said. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. Jesus is getting them to remember. So often, I forget God's faithfulness in my life. How quickly I forget the things that God has done in my life. How my prayers have been answered. How God has come through. The miracles that I have seen take place. I've heard it said before that there is no better shield against uh, spiritual weakness than Christian remembering. To just remember the many ways that God has been faithful to you in the past. To take a moment to look backwards and see all the moments that God has been faithful, that he has come through in unexpected ways. And that you can then look forward and be strengthened for the future of all that God has for you. You can have a hope for the future because you look back and see what God has done. This is why we do praise reports We could call them remembering reports because we remember all that God has been doing in our lives and it strengthens us and it it stirs up our faith for what God can do in the future. We need to be remembering of all that God has been doing. The fourth thing we need is an attitude of asking, not questioning. In verse 11, the Pharisees interrogated, questioned Jesus. But again, there's a big difference between asking questions and questioning God is not afraid of your questions or your doubts. I want you to know that. They're not automatically bad things. Again, doubting is a search for the truth. God's door is open to the questions that we might have. Bring them to God. That's a good thing. But there's a difference between questions and questioning. Questioning is when you come to God, again, like the Pharisees did, and you demand that God reveal ourselves to us in the way that we want him to. Otherwise, we won't believe in him. And I think that sadly, this kind of questioning, this kind of, uh, this attitude, this cynical attitude, it runs rampant through Western Christianity today. I think all too often, Western Christianity is steeped in consumerism, where we try to get God to meet our need and meet our will, as opposed to us submitting ourselves to his will. will. So in this coming week, instead of, instead of questioning God, ask questions to God. Have a heart that genuinely wants to know him. Don't interrogate him, but ask questions through prayer. Say, God, here's my heart, and here's my fear. God, why is it like this? God, why did that have to happen? Why am I struggling through this area? But have a heart that's not interrogating God, but is genuinely wanting to know why it might be the way that it is. And lastly, we need to have an attitude of gratitude, not entitlement. Entitlement says, I deserve this. Gratitude says, I don't deserve this. Entitlement is baked into our culture. So many people grow up thinking that they deserve everything. Or as I've heard one pastor say, even worse, I deserve better. That's entitlement. I love that when Jesus takes the bread and the fish, he gives thanks. 
He gave thanks for the fish. He gave thanks for the bread. He doesn't look at these things and think, a few fish and some bread, this is worthless. What's the deal? Like, do you know who I am? I am the Messiah. I deserve better than this. I'm Jesus. No, I, I think that in this, Jesus is a model of gratitude for us. He sets a template for our lives. What if we took the bread and the fish that is before us in our lives, the normal, the regular, the mundane things of life, and we were to be thankful for it? How might that change the attitude that we have? How might that affect our day-to-day? And then when those things that we are thankful for, we take them and we also start to pass it out to others so that they might enjoy God's blessing together with us. This week, I want to encourage you simply give thanks. For the ordinary things in life, the normal things, the day-to-day, get in your car and say, God, thank you for this car. Get on your bike and say, God, thank you that I have this bike. Go to your job and say, thank you, Lord, for this job. Thank you for this family. Thank you for my marriage. Thank you for whatever it might be. Give thanks. And then spread that blessing to others as well. Just to close, as worship team, you guys come back up. I'm just going to finish up. Um, As followers of Jesus... We need to constantly relearn how to see, how to hear, how to remember, how to ask, and how to give thanks. I want to encourage us as a church, let's really take this on for the rest of this summer and as we lead up to the autumn. We're really excited for what God is doing in our church. We're excited for what he's going to continue to do. We believe it's going to be such a strong Um, autumn season for us. We've got various new initiatives that we're launching, uh, new ministries that we're launching. There's a lot that is going on. And we're excited for that. Um, But none of it is easy. None of it is simple. There is much to be done. When we look out at the needs of this city, there is much to be done. And there's many ways to respond and many ways to do it, all of them good. But we say, God, which is the one that we take as a church? And I just want to encourage us that even in the rest of the summer and as we continue on as a church, that before we do for God, we must be with God. Let that be the place that we draw our strength from. And I believe that it's through being with him and living out what I've been sharing today that we will be empowered to actually live out the reality of God's presence in our city today. And I think that as we do that, we will see God do some mighty and miraculous things. I believe that God has great things in store for your life personally. And I want to encourage you to not be the kind of disciple that is following Jesus, but at the same time, you have a stubborn or rebellious heart and we're missing out on him, actually. Let's not allow that little bit of yeast of unbelief to just spread through us and and cause us to doubt in Jesus. But let's commit ourselves to him fully and totally. And I believe that God is going to move mightily because of it.